Well, once again, let me greet you as we join together with our uh, friends in the Community Life Center, as well as those who uh, might be joining us online in the coming uh, days. Just a quick word about what you're seeing here. Um, throughout the seasons of the year, we present a variety of musical and dramatic productions, and we always transform this platform area to reflect whatever that production is. So over the years, I've preached from a submarine. Uh, I've preached from the deck of a spaceship. This morning, I come to you from an orchestra pit. We are set up uh, today for our presentation of How Great Our Joy. And once again, let me just encourage everybody to come and join us either at 3 o'clock or 6.30 this evening as we worship together. But for now, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We continue our Advent journey looking at the promise that God has given us the last couple of weeks, we were in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophecies of Isaiah, as we anticipated that promise from long ago. Uh, today, we begin to look at the, the advent of that promise. It begins to come true, and yet it does so at significant cost. Let me invite you to follow along as we read from Matthew, uh, the first chapter, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, it was almost exactly a year ago that my wife and I took momentary leave of our sanity and decided to give our youngest daughter exactly what she was asking for for Christmas. And what does every child ask for for Christmas but a new puppy? Now, to put that not-so-brilliant choice of ours into context, you should understand that at the time we already had one dog and one cat, both of whom were already completely housebroken and very well-mannered. This new little bag of fur is neither. And you'll notice I used the present tense in that sentence. Because a year later, we are still dealing with the fact that as small as his bladder is, his brain is apparently even smaller. <laughs> now, I will say this for him. He is cute and he is friendly. 
but he is also demanding and high maintenance. We are constantly cleaning up after him, shooing him off of the sofa and rescuing the cat from the top of the china cabinet because he's chased her there yet again. And of course, our daughter is absolutely head over heels in love with the thing, so what are we going to do? I guess we just have to keep the paper towels handy. Sometimes the best gifts are the ones that make the greatest demands on us. Just ask that new parent, weary-eyed and yet full of joy as she goes through that 3 a.m. feeding. Just ask the person who's finally landed the dream job and is now working 65 and 70 hours a week. Even good gifts require things from us, make demands upon us, institute changes in our lives, changes that we wouldn't have made had the gift not been given. It's certainly the case when it comes to the gift of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is absolutely the greatest gift and the greatest news that we could ever receive because in sending Jesus into the world, God has responded to our greatest need and has solved our biggest problem. Our greatest need, our biggest problem is not better politics or better economics or better technology, as wonderful as all of those things would be. Our greatest need and our greatest problem is sin. We are sinful creatures. We are rebellious at heart. Our natural state is to be at war with God. And so we have cut off fellowship with our Creator. And because we were created for fellowship with Him, when we are in that natural state, we will never fulfill the purpose for which we were created. Jesus has responded to that need by making atonement for our sin and by making peace with God for us on our behalf. He has come and has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And because of that, our union with God has been restored. But that great gift from God is one that continues to make a huge demand upon us. Because if we receive this gift, it will very likely take our ordered little lives and flip them upside down. I once had a seminary professor who warned us future preachers that we shouldn't tell people that if they will just give their hearts to Jesus, he will answer all of their questions and solve all of their problems because he won't. In fact, our professor said, you need to be honest. You need to stand up in front of your people on Sunday and tell them that if they choose to follow Jesus, he very well may give them problems that they didn't have before they chose to follow him. Because Jesus is going to ask things of us that we are not naturally inclined to give. And he's going to make demands of us that we will not always be ready to meet. And if we pay close attention to the Christmas story, we can see that simple reality on display from the very beginning of the New Testament. Because before Jesus ever even actually shows up, he's already disrupting things and creating difficulties for people. You know, we like to portray the Christmas story 
as though it is a warm blanket that we wrap around ourselves to bring comfort and peace. And at times, it is. But we cannot overlook the fact that the people who found themselves caught up in that first Christmas story got sent off on an adventure that very quickly became hard and demanding and even, in some cases, downright dangerous. Think about Mary, for example. We'll look at her story more fully next week. But just consider the difficult position she found herself in. There she is, minding her own business, leading a quiet, obscure life in some forgotten little corner of the world called Bethlehem, where the mighty forces of the empire will most likely just ignore her and let her be in peace. And then one day, from out of nowhere, an angel shows up and tells her that she's going to conceive a child by the Holy Spirit. And this at a day and a time when being pregnant out of wedlock was a crime that was punishable by death. I think this is part of the reason why Mary had to go halfway across the country to be with her cousin Elizabeth. She had to go into hiding so she wouldn't be killed. That's just the beginning of her challenges. Her entire life would be marked by difficulty and struggle and all because of this thing that God asked her to do. Today we're looking at the story of Joseph and what he was asked to do. Now, To put his story in context, it helps to know a little bit about the, the culture of his day. Life in, in the ancient world of the Middle East was defined by what scholars today call an honor-shame culture. A little different than ours. In our day and time, the individual acquires status by achieving certain things. The more money you earn, the more accolades you achieve, the more fame you build, the more status you acquire. It's an individual effort that you fulfill. But in Joseph's day and time, status was defined differently. Status in your society was defined by personal honor. And honor wasn't something you acquired by your own effort. It was rather something that was conferred upon you by the community to which you belonged. And they conferred honor upon you by watching you over time do several things. One, lead a life of moral integrity. Secondly, be in good relational standing with the people around you. It didn't matter how much you accomplished. If you weren't in good relationships, it didn't work for anything. And then finally, you had to recognize and represent your family name well. And in that day and time, honor was the most desirable thing. It's what people wanted more than a bigger house or a better job. They wanted honor. And so the worst thing that could happen to you was for your honor to be violated either by something you did or by something someone else did to you. And you want to know what will violate your honor quicker than anything else in that day and time? Try this. Have your fiancé show up pregnant before the wedding day. 
And you want to know what violates your honor even more than that? Have your fiancé show up pregnant before the wedding day with a child that you know is not yours. Suddenly, the thing that is most important to Joseph and his contemporaries is being jerked right out from underneath him. Because now, not only has Mary obviously broken the law of Moses, but Joseph's good name has been violated. And his family will now be exposed to shame. Well, faced with that news, Joseph's apparently got a couple of options. The first is that according to the law of Moses, he can expose Mary for the adulteress everyone will immediately assume her to be and let her face the consequences. The other slightly more humane option was to quietly issue her a certificate of divorce, break off the engagement before anyone finds out what's happened, and then send her off to live somewhere in exile. Now, her future prospects would be bleak, certainly, but at least she could escape with her life. That's where Mary and Joseph find themselves all of a sudden, and by no choice of their own. But God has a different path for them to walk. And so he asks Joseph to do something, something that goes against every instinct within him and against every cultural expectation around him. God asked Joseph to take Mary as his wife and to take her unborn child as his own son. Joseph is being asked by God to lay aside his most valued possession, his honor so that he can take a course of action that won't make any sense by the world's standards. Why? Because God is asking Joseph to yield to a higher authority and to submit himself to a bigger story than his. God was not afraid to ask hard things of them. And so suddenly the Christmas story gets very real. Suddenly it's no longer just about pretty lights and warm feelings and presents under the tree as nice as all of that is. Christmas is about a God who is so determined to have us for himself that he will insert himself. Maybe better to say he will intrude himself into our lives and begin asking things of us that we would otherwise never be asked to do. Because Christmas is about a God who refuses to stay out of our business. I think I've told you before about a friend friend I once had many years ago who grew up in a nominally Christian home, but who later as an adult became an atheist. And he once told me what a relief it was to finally get rid of this idea of a God who was always looking over his shoulder and watching what he did. And so that now he was finally free to live his life the way he wanted. I give my friend some credit. Because I think he understands the implications of the incarnation may be better than we want to acknowledge. Because the incarnation is all about a God who won't leave us alone. If you were here in worship last week, you heard a brief testimonial about a woman named Lottie Moon. 
Lottie was a Baptist missionary in the latter half of the 19th century. She spent 39 years ministering to the people of China. And many historians will now look back today with the advantage of hindsight and acknowledge that her work there helped to lay the foundation for the modern Chinese church, which today is one of the fastest growing church movements in the world. But that impact that she had, it didn't come easily or without cost. Back in 1861, Lottie became the first woman in the South to earn a master's degree. And so that meant she was well positioned to live a life of of privilege. She could become a real trailblazer, make a name for herself. Then at the age of 32, her life took an unexpected turn when she turned down a marriage proposal. Now, I don't want to reinforce gender stereotypes, but let's be honest, it's the late 1800s. If you are a woman in polite southern society looking for a point of access to privilege and social acceptance, you don't turn down a viable marriage proposal. But she did. Why? Because she felt God calling her to the mission field. And so she left behind her family and everything that was familiar to her, and she began a life that, frankly, was filled with challenges and difficulties. Now, at first, the Chinese people were suspicious of her. They did not receive her or her message, as is so often the case for missionaries who find themselves in an unfamiliar culture. But eventually, as she completely immersed herself in their world, adopting their language and their culture, they began to hear her, and eventually many of them did come to faith. Her ministry gained a foothold until Lottie died at 72 from ill health brought about by a famine that her people were suffering. Now, why would someone voluntarily walk away from a life of privilege to take upon herself that kind of hardship? The answer is simple. Because she believed God was asking her to. And let's be clear, God is not asking everyone to go to China. In fact... One of the most radical things God may ask some of us to do is not to go, but to stay. Maybe God is asking us to stay where we are rather than run away to some place that might look easier. Maybe God is asking us to stay in that marriage, even though our expectations have been severely disappointed. Maybe God is asking some of us to stay in that ministry where we serve, even though at times it is frustrating and we doubt whether it's having any effect. Maybe God is asking us to stay in that job or stay in that neighborhood or even just stay in communication with that person who has wounded us so deeply. Whether God is asking us to go or to stay in any given situation This much is true. God is asking all of us to realize that just as was the case for Joseph, our lives belong to a higher authority and are part of a bigger story than ours. 
Earlier this week, I made a quick trip to North Georgia to visit my ailing grandfather, drove one day, came back the next. And, and as I drove, I would periodically scan through the radio stations that were in range wherever I happened to be just to kind of alleviate the boredom. And for a few miles as I came across one of the mountains in Tennessee, I, I picked up for just a few moments a, a call-in radio show where people from all over the country could call in and speak to two pastors about various circumstances and situations they were in just to get these pastors' perspectives on things. One woman called in and explained that her husband was leaving her. She briefly described the circumstances surrounding the breakup, and then she asked, I thought this was so intriguing, she asked if under those circumstances the Bible would permit her ever to remarry. Now, I thought these two pastors gave a thoughtful response to her question, but for just a moment, I want you to forget about their answer. Instead, what struck me was the fact that this woman was even willing to ask the question. You see, we live in a culture that prizes individual freedom and personal choice as the highest of all virtues, and yet here is somebody who is willing to recognize that her life doesn't fully belong to her and that God may be asking something of her that goes against the grain of what's natural, something that may not be easy. And she was at least willing to hear what that was. Mary and Joseph were both asked by God to do hard things, even dangerous things. But it wasn't because God takes pleasure in putting people through difficult circumstances. Instead, it was because God is up to something remarkable. He has something dramatic and drastic and radical that he's trying to accomplish. God is doing nothing less than redeeming the world back to himself. Jesus didn't come into the world just to punch our ticket so that we can go to heaven when we die, as though we can forget about everything that happens between now and then. Certainly going to heaven when we die is the climax of the promise we have from God, but that promise begins in the present moment as God begins even now to reclaim this broken world. And that kind of radical desire from God is going to require nothing less than a radical response from us. God makes a big ask because God has a big dream. Think of it like this. Think of one of those um, home renovation shows that you watch at 3 a.m. on the HGTV channel. I always cringe whenever I walk into the room and one of those is on because I know before long I'll have to be making a trip to Lowe's for something. See, at the beginning of the episode, some buyer is looking to snap up a good deal, and so he buys a home that's in bad shape. It's, it's out of date. It's, it needs structural help. It's just, well, it's just in bad shape. And with the help of a contractor and an interior decorator, they get to work redoing it from the inside out. And by the end of that 30-minute episode, the entire house has been transformed from inside out. It's a showcase. It's so easy anybody can do it, right? The problem is the compressed time of that one episode tends to obscure just how much work has to be done. 
because in some places it's got to be stripped down all the way to the stud walls and the foundations. You see, you don't bring about the kind of transformation that that homeowner is looking for just by slapping a couple of coats of paint on a wall. It requires deep change, big change, sometimes expensive change. So it is with the renewal God is bringing about in our lives. God wants to do nothing more than completely transform our character. And ultimately to completely transform our world. And you don't get to that kind of big change just by dabbling around on the surface of things. A few candles in the windows in December won't cut it. God is asking for much more from us because God is trying to do much more with us. So what is the big ask that God is putting before us? Before you, before me. Maybe God is asking for a big change in the way we approach our marriage so that our relationship with our spouse can more fully reflect the covenant of unconditional love that Jesus has made with his church. Maybe God is asking us to reach out and attempt reconciliation with a friend or a loved one where a relationship has been severed, even though it's going to require swallowing our pride. Maybe God is asking us to approach our financial lives in an entirely different way so that we can be more disciplined and more faithful, both in what we spend and in what we give. Maybe God is asking us to acknowledge a habit or a sinful pattern that needs to be completely broken so we can pursue a lifestyle of holiness and godliness. Maybe God is asking us to go deeper in the way we serve others or give of our time to facilitate the ministries of this church or of the community around us. Or maybe God is just asking us to walk next door and introduce ourselves to our neighbor so we can figure out how to love him more fully. Whatever it may be, God is not afraid to ask big things of us because God, God has a big dream for us. We're gathered here today because the faithful ones in the generations before us, stretching all the way back to the time of Mary and Joseph, We're willing to receive that ask and respond in faith. What about us? Let's pray together. Father God, you have done more than we could ever ask or imagine. Your unending mercy and grace that you have poured out on us in unmeasured manner through Jesus Christ 
is a gift we did not earn. And the acceptance you have offered to us is a gift that can only be received and never deserved. Cause us now to examine our lives more fully and more faithfully to see where and how you were calling us to make changes, to make sacrifices, and to give deeply. May your dream come true in our lives as we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God asks of us, and an ask always involves a response. What is it? The first thing he asks us to do is very simple, to give ourselves to him. If we've never acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, that's the first step. To acknowledge that our life is not our own, that he is Lord and Savior. And if that's where you are this morning and you've never acknowledged that, then as we sing here in just a moment, I would invite you to come forward while we sing. We'll receive you and pray together if you need a church home. God has asked us to be in fellowship with other believers. And if you've never acknowledged that and taken that step, then we want to receive you. If there's anything else that you need to make public, any part of your response to God this morning that you want to share with a brother, I will be here. But God is asking all of us, what will we give? Let's worship him together as we stand and sing.